And tonight, straight from the source, Donald Trump is responding for the first time after Nikki Haley said not only is she not dropping out of the 2024 race, she doesn't fear his retribution either. Also tonight, our one-on-one with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, a key witness in both election interference cases, revealing to CNN for the first time he's been interviewed by the special counsel Jack Smith. Also, what he makes of the 2024 race and the district attorney scandal unfolding in his state. Also tonight, this stunning revelation that we are still digging into. The former FBI informant who's been indicted for lying about the Bidens now says those lies were fed to him by Russian intelligence officials, then amplified by Republicans in Congress. A key Democrat will respond in moments. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Four days ahead of the South Carolina primary tonight, where Governor Nikki Haley is trailing Donald Trump in her home state, she has just delivered what may be the most defiant speech of her campaign yet. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. I'm campaigning every day until the last person votes. Haley is pledging to continue her long-shot pursuit of the GOP nomination, casting herself as a David, taking on Goliath. And she's also ramping up her attacks on the former president that she once served under. I feel no need to kiss the ring. I have no fear of Trump's retribution. He's getting meaner and more offensive by the day. It's not normal to insult our military heroes and veterans. It's not normal to call on Russia to invade NATO countries. He's gotten more unstable and unhinged. He's completely distracted. And everything is about him. I'm told by multiple sources that Trump's campaign is increasingly irritated by Haley's refusal to drop out of this race. And officials with his campaign said today that she has no mathematical path, they believe, to the Republican nomination. The former president himself is responding to Haley's persistence tonight. She's down by 30, 35 points, and everybody knows her. You're not supposed to lose your home state. Shouldn't happen anyway, and she's losing it bigly. I don't think she knows how to get out, actually. Uh, I really don't. The Democrats are giving her money, and she's playing into the game. For more on the state of this race, I want to turn now to a prominent Republican, one who has faced Trump's retribution and famously stood up to the pressure campaign from the former president to overturn the legitimate election results in the state of Georgia. Let's go straight to the source tonight with Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Governor Kemp. Thank you for being here. Good to sit down with you again. Great to have you on The Source. Uh, on the news that we heard today, Governor Nikki Haley saying that she is staying in this race no matter what happens on Saturday. Do you support that? Well, I've said all along, you know, the, the, you got a process that's playing out in the race. Uh, I'm glad the RNC or whoever the powers that were be that were trying to inaugurate, I guess, uh, President Trump to be the nominee didn't do that. I think it's best to let the process play out the way it's designed. Uh, certainly it's up to Nikki Haley's, you know, her her campaign and herself to decide whether she wants to keep running or not, and she is, and so I support that. Of course, if I was in the Trump camp, I'd be continuing to put pressure on her to get her out. So I think that's the way it's supposed to play out, and we'll see what happens on Saturday. One thing she said in her speech that, that stood out to me, she said, we don't anoint kings in this country. We have elections, and Donald Trump, of all people, 
should know that we don't rig elections. Do you think Donald Trump knows that? Well, I think that's a pretty good line uh, for her situation. Um, but but that's she's right. You know, we, we don't need the processes to be rigged. They need to play out. And, you know, you could ask Trump if he knows that or not. I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to answer that for him. We've talked about the election, uh, but on the 2024 race generally, you know, you have been very concerned about Republicans winning and what that looks like. And something you said recently that you said it's unacceptable to you that Republicans have not won the popular vote uh, for 20 years now. And you said, quote, as bad as Joe Biden is, this election will not be a cakewalk. Do you think that Donald Trump can win the popular vote or, or just the election period? Well, I definitely think he could win. You know, I definitely think he could lose. And that's really what my point is. I mean, we need candidates, I think, to be able to win and to be able to win uh, in, in November of 2024, to be focused on the future, to be telling the American people what we're for, you know, why they should vote for us, not why the other person's so bad. I mean, look, there's plenty of bad things, uh, in my opinion, about Joe Biden and, and the way he's governed the country. But also, I think you got to give people a reason to vote for you. And that's been my message, not only uh, just a few weeks ago, but also a few months ago, I was saying the same thing. How do Republicans do that? What does winning look like for them? Because you're someone who was able to successfully win re-election in your state when it was an open question initially when we talked then. What do they need to be running on come November, in your view? Well, I think looking back, I mean, take the border, for instance, right now. The reason the border is a disaster is because we didn't win the 2020 election at the presidential level. We got we got beat. We lost the election. Therefore, you're seeing bad policies that have created a disaster at the border. So it's imperative that you win to be able to get into positions like I'm, I'm in where you can you can actually govern. And if you look at my reelection campaign, I mean, look, there was plenty of distractions, people trying to talk about this issue or that issue. And we kept telling uh, the people of Georgia, what were we going to do for them? You know, what our record was, like getting the economy going, coming out of COVID, not backing down to people that were pressuring us, you know, not to reopen or to shut back down and to keep our kids in the classroom and not to defund the police and go after bad criminal actors and, you know, uh, Antifa and other people that are trying to burn down the city of Atlanta. We didn't get distracted on these other issues. And that's what we need to do in the presidential election, in, in my opinion. And when you talk about how that happens, the Republican National Committee is obviously a part of trying to help other Republicans get elected. I wonder, you know, what you make of Trump being in the middle of kind of maneuvering to this takeover of the RNC. He's putting in a loyalist in charge, his daughter-in-law also, both of whom I should note are election deniers. Do you think that's going to put Republicans in a good spot for this fall or do you have concerns about that? Well, I mean, look, we'll see. Uh, you know, I've had concerns about the RNC and their ability to get the vote out and to get the early vote out and to raise enough money to be able to help candidates on the ground in, in Georgia. You know, we had to do a lot of that ourselves. And I'm not trying to, you know, pick at anybody that's, that's in the state party, the national party, but, yeah, it's, but it's, just, it. it's just the fact that, you know, we could not rely on them to get the vote out. We've had to do that ourselves. And I think that's a concern that, you know, any campaign uh, whether it's Nikki Haley or Donald Trump or anybody else that's going to be running. I mean, you got to have a good ground game. you got to raise a lot of money to get the vote out. We don't need to wait till Election Day to do that. Um, and, and, you know, quite honestly, the last couple of cycles, we haven't done that. If we had a, you know, we'd have won close states versus losing them. 
I want to talk about something that happened in your home state last week. We all watched that dramatic testimony from the Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis. Based on what you saw, do you believe that she should be disqualified? Well, listen, we've had a political process there that, believe it or not, has gotten more political. And uh, we certainly saw that last week. I've got to be very careful about what I'm saying here because, as you know, I was subpoenaed to be a witness in that in that grand jury. And so I, I really don't want to speak too much other than, you know, what I've said all along is I followed the law and the Constitution. But I've been very concerned about that being a political process. And I think now uh, Fonnie Willis is seeing how political it can get on the other side. Well, there was this effort, though, by far right Republicans in Georgia to try to sanction her or defund the investigation. You pushed back on that and said, you know, this could create a precedent and have backlash that, that y'all don't really see what's coming. I mean, do you have concerns that the public, that now the public won't accept how she conducts this investigation if she does stay on? Well, I would just say two years ago, we started pushing legislation to have oversight for district attorneys. We have a lot of district attorneys in the in the state and uh, they are around the country. They're not following the law. They're not going after the people that they need to go after to keep our local community safe. And so we worked with the General Assembly to get a bill passed. Last year, there was a lawsuit on the constitutionality of, of just one small part of that. Uh, the, the judges basically sent a signal to the legislature that we need to fix that. And so we're in the process of doing that right now. But the commission has been been made up. It, it'll be a, a you know, a commission of district attorney's peers that will look and see uh, if there has been violations and there'll be a process for the public to be able to file complaints, just like we do with our judges in the state. To me, uh, that is the law. That is how w this should pr play out if people have issues with Vonnie Willis uh, and would like to file a complaint versus a bunch of politicians doing that. You think it should be in that process? If she is disqualified, though, it, it's an open question of what happens to the investigation. And I think, you know, what's at the heart of this investigation ha has nothing to do with the complaints about her and the questions about her, the allegations about her. Are you worried that Georgia voters may not get justice in this case if, if she is disqualified and well, the case falls apart? Yeah, I, I would just tell you that six months, eight months ago, I never thought this case would go to trial before the election then. And uh, I think most people think that's the case now. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think voters should get too distracted on all of this and just stay focused on what's at hand going into November and let Judge McAfee uh, make his ruling based on... And you'll trust his ruling. Just, well, listen, I, I believe uh, he, he's a good man. I mean, I appointed him, um, and I think he... Uh, I'm very confident that, that he'll be, a, you know, a constitutionalist, if you will. He won't make up the law. He'll follow it, and we'll see what his ruling says. You mentioned that you're a witness in that. You were also contacted in another investigation into the election and the efforts to overturn it. That was Jack Smith, the special counsel's we reported that, that your office was contacted. When did you sit down with Jack Smith's office and how long did you talk to them for? Mm, I don't know exactly when that was. Um, I mean, it's been months ago, um, but really didn't last that long. I mean, I basically told them the same thing. I told the, the special grand juries that I followed the law and the constitution and answered all their questions truthfully. Trump is making an argument right now that is in the hands of the Supreme Court where it goes that that he has brought immunity from being president and that he can't be prosecuted for anything he did while he was in office. I wonder what you make of that claim. Well, listen, I, I don't think anybody's above the law, you know, a Democrat, a Republican, an independent, myself or, or anybody else. Uh, 
Um, so that, that's my personal opinion. Do you think that those cases should go to trial before the election so voters can make a decision based off that? Well, listen, I think most voters probably feel the same way I do. I mean, we're a country that was built on laws and the Constitution, and it's, it's you know, up, up to us, really, as elected leaders to be the ones that exemplify that in a lot of ways. Uh, so we'll see where the process plays out. I think probably they will be ruled on for the election. Governor Kemp, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Up next here, from Russia to Republicans, breaking news tonight, apparent lies that are at the center of the Republicans' impeachment inquiry into President Biden that actually, apparently, came from intelligence officers in Russia. That's according to the former FBI informant who has now been indicted by the feds. Also tonight, Donald Trump with a do-over on the death of Alexei Navalny. But guess what? Still not condemning Putin. Instead, comparing what is happening to Navalny to his own legal troubles. Breaking news tonight because the former FBI informant, and I put that in quotes because he has now been charged with lying about the Biden's family, Biden family's dealings in Ukraine, now says that it was Russian intelligence officials who passed along that bogus information to him about Hunter Biden. A judge tonight has just ordered his release from jail pending trial. CNN caught this video of Alexander Smirnov leaving court in Las Vegas tonight. It's hard to see, but yes, that is him, completely covered with a hood, a hat, and a mask. This comes after earlier today we read through a new Justice Department filing that says that person there, the ex-informant, told authorities after he was arrested that he had extensive and extremely recent contacts with foreign intelligence officials. Remember, of course, this is the man behind the information that House Republicans have used as the key evidence to launch their impeachment inquiry into President Biden. And again, it's information that is not true. It's false. Prosecutors now say that he has been, quote, actively peddling new lies that could impact U.S. elections. CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed is digging through this remarkable filing and joins me now. Paula, I mean, prosecutors, they were trying to disclose this information to keep him in jail as he awaited trial. Clearly, the judge has disagreed and released him under certain conditions. But walk us through what we did learn from this filing. Caitlin, this is truly stunning. And I want to emphasize that the source of this information is special counsel David Wise. He's the one overseeing two criminal prosecutions against Hunter Biden. He's also overseeing the Smirnoff case. Now, as you noted, this filing was an effort to try to keep Smirnoff behind, uh, behind bars, uh, detained pending his trial. That didn't work, but he still revealed these additional new details about what they're learning. So they allege that after Smirnov was arrested last week uh, because of the lies he told about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, Biden allegedly receiving $5 million in bribes, once he was in custody, he told investigators that some of the information he had about Hunter Biden came from Russian intelligence. Now, that is a bombshell, but I also want to caveat that in this filing, prosecutors don't have any independent verification of Smirnov's claims. There's no proof that he did talk to Russian intelligence officials, though they do indicate that he has a long record uh, of having contacts with foreign, foreign intelligence officials. Prosecutors also uh, emphasize the impact that his lies have had on U.S. politics. They say, quote, the false information he provided was not trivial. It targeted the presumptive nominee 
of one of the two major political parties in the United States. The effects of Smirnov's false statements and fabricated information continue to be felt to this day. That appears to be a reference, of course, to the GOP effort to impeach Biden, much of that resting on what the DOJ says are lies. But, Caitlin, it was interesting. Just a short time ago, uh, a judge dismissed these concerns uh, about politics, saying that they're not relevant, and also said that these concerns about foreign intelligence interference are, quote, speculative. Hmm. Well, well, I mean, that's interesting, because what the Justice Department was saying, Paula, was basically they had con- real concerns uh, about his contacts with those Russians and what it could mean if he got out. I mean, they were talking about how much money he had, which they said he lied about when he was arrested. They were talking about his access to, to get an Israeli passport. He lived in Israel for 20 years. They had real concerns that, that he could be a flight risk. Absolutely. They were arguing that there were no conditions under which he could be safely released. They pointed three things. One, his access to millions of dollars, his web of foreign contacts, and his history of lying. As you noted, he lied about how much money he had. He said he only had a couple grand, when in fact he actually had access to millions of dollars through a joint account with someone he refers to as both a wife uh, and a girlfriend in different, in different conversations. But they also point to the fact that he doesn't really have any ties here in the U.S. Most of his family is in Israel, and they say, quote, what he does have is extensive foreign ties, including, most troublingly, and by his own account, contact with foreign intelligence services, including Russian intelligence agencies, and has had such contacts recently. Smirnov could use these contacts to resettle outside the U.S. Now, he will be subject to GPS monitoring. He has to hand in his two passports, but in the filing, prosecutors say, look, he's an Israeli citizen. He can go to the embassy and get a new Israeli passport. Paula Reed, it is a stunning filing. Thank you for breaking the key parts of it down. For reaction to this, here tonight is Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, the ranking member of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee. And Congressman, I mean, let me just start there because this is something that members of your committee, Republicans, of course, on it, not Democrats, have been using as the basis for this. And I wonder if when you look at this, you wonder if James Comer, Jim Jordan, Chuck Grassley in the Senate, if they have fallen for for this apparent Russian disinformation campaign, but not just that, they've amplified it. Well, and that lie told by Mr. Smirnoff has been the foundation of the entire impeachment investigation for more than a year, and they've continued to defend it right up until last week when Smirnoff was uh, indicted for lying to the FBI and filing false statements, creating a false documentary record. This uh, revelation is really explosive because it, it really ties the whole thing together. We know that Putin has been trying to interfere in American elections and successfully interfering in American elections since 2016, when 17 uh, U.S. national security agencies found that he had been engaged in cyber surveillance and cyber espionage against the DNC, against Hillary Clinton. Then in 2020, when even Donald Trump's own Treasury Department issued sanctions against Putin for his interference in the 2020 election. And now it leads all the way up to the 2024 election, where they're continuing to recycle and, as you say, amplify um, these falsehoods that are concocted as part of a Russian conspiracy theory. So I hope that our colleagues uh, on the Oversight Committee and Mr. Comer will finally just give up the ghost and shut down the circus and say, all right, this is over. We tried our best, but there's nothing there other than disinformation and propaganda by Vladimir Putin. But do you think they will? 
Well, so far they've not. I mean, we had another guy who was supposed to be a bombshell witness who turned out to be uh, an asset or an agent for the Chinese government. And that blew up in their face, too. And every other witness uh, really implodes on them. And they just go on to the next one as if we wouldn't notice the pattern. But I, I do think this is the end of the road because this is where it all began with that original lie. And now it's becoming very clear how it got started. This is all part of a propaganda and disinformation campaign by Russia attempting to help Donald Trump. And, you know, when we point out the very clear contours of this story, our colleagues just start chanting, Russia hoax, Russia hoax. Well, what's the hoax? Is it the, uh, the brutal invasion of Ukraine and the tens of thousands of Ukrainians who've died or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Russians who've died? Is it the death of Navalny that's the hoax? What exactly is the hoax they're talking about? Because um, it seems to me that the most well, likely hoax is really Donald Trump, who's been manipulated uh, by Putin for a long time or is certainly in love with Vladimir Putin and refuses to say a negative word about anything he does. And, Congressman, I just want to read part of this because this is the concern that prosecutors had in here was saying that the, the false information he was providing was not just trivial information, that it was spreading and it was not confined even to the last election that is related to this election. They said he is actively peddling new lies that could impact U.S. elections after meeting with Russian intelligence officials in November. I mean, what's your concern about that? Well, you know, if you go back to the beginning of the Trump administration and then the first impeachment when there was the shakedown of Zelensky, it's very clear that Russia was defending the corruption in Ukraine against the reformist forces, including Joe Biden, who was working to get rid of a, a corrupt prosecutor general. Um, and so they have viewed Ukraine from the very beginning um, as a target for Russia. And then they've generated all of these lies and all of this propaganda to try to insulate um, Putin's attempts to subdue and control Ukraine right up to the invasion and then right up to today, because we know exactly what's going on. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin, who was the head of the KGB, said that the biggest tragedy of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. He wants to recreate the Russian Empire, this time not as a communist autocracy, but as a right wing autocracy. And he wants Ukraine to be part of it and Poland and well, Estonia and you uh, name it. And can I ask so, you, I I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is a really important part of this, I think, which is the role that David Weiss has played in all of this and the fact that it took the feds this long to, to vet this information, to figure this out, given this person has been a source for them, a confidential human source for over 10 years, they note in this filing. I mean, what questions do you have for David Weiss tonight? Well, yes. And of course, uh, we should be clear that David Weiss was uh, appointed by Donald Trump. Um, so he's served in different administrations. But, you know, when Chairman Comer first went down this road uh, of the Form 1023 and they wanted to place everything on this false statement that Burisma had given Joe Biden $5 million, um, they assured us that the person who was reporting that from a third party was a, a reliable, confidential human source. Why were they so certain back then that they would tell Chairman Coburn and me that this guy was a reliable source? He clearly wasn't 
uh, a reliable source or he had not been thoroughly vetted. So I'd like to know that. But the critical thing now to understand is that it's a complete house of cards built on a lie and a conspiracy theory. And it's all gone. The House of Cards has collapsed now. And Chairman Comer should simply terminate the investigation and say there's nothing there. That would be the intellectually honest approach at this moment. Congressman Jamie Raskin, thanks for hopping on with us on this breaking news tonight. We also have much more to come on the extent because these lies weren't just peddled on Capitol Hill and amplified by Republicans. They were also amplified by right wing and conservative media for voters to believe. We'll break down that right after a quick break. More now on our breaking news tonight as the former FBI informant who is charged with lying about the Biden family's dealings in Ukraine now says it was Russian intelligence officials who gave him those fake stories. Much of this information from this informant and quite possibly was and quite possibly still is at the center of the GOP's impeachment efforts into President Biden and has been amplified relentlessly by right wing media, essentially doing Putin's work for him. Here tonight is CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy. And Oliver, just to give people a sense of what this has sound like and what this has looked like for, for people who watch these channels or visit these sites, uh, this is what this has been like for the last few months. There are now real and growing concerns that your president, the president of our country, is compromised. How real of a bribery, scan Joe Biden bribery scandal allegation is this? Well, every day this bribery scandal becomes more credible. We already know the president took bribes from Burisma. This is about the big guy himself, Joe Biden, a corrupt career politician who is now very credibly accused of public corruption on a scale this country has never seen before. The most corroborating evidence we have is that 1023 form from this highly credible confidential human source, according to U.S. Attorney Scott Brady. I mean, I guess to their credit, the FBI was treating this person as a confidential human source that they've been relying on. But, but clearly we've seen what has happened now that they've looked into his claims. Yeah, I mean, most media and organizations uh, were skeptical of these claims, given what they are, that the former vice president took a $5 million bribe along with his son. And so uh, they treated them with skepticism. Fox News, on the other hand, uh, aired this propaganda, you know, left and right. If you were watching Fox News, you were being inundated with these claims. And if you talk to Republicans and they, they say, you know, Biden is head of this Biden crime family, this crime syndicate, and you wonder why that is. It's because they're being inundated by people like Sean Hannity, who repeated these claims uh, in almost 100 segments just last year uh, with this information. And so if you want to understand why so much of the Republican Party supported, for instance, impeaching the former president uh, last year, it was I think it was like 78 percent of Republicans supported that. You have to understand where they're getting their information. And it's coming from people like Hannity who are lying. And now, of course, now that this is falling apart in public, they're really nowhere to be found. They're either ignoring this or you see people even stoking further conspiracies, saying that basically anyone who speaks out against Biden gets arrested. And that's what happened in this so case. So they're and not so, coming out and reporting on the fact that this filing says he's basically been making it all up and getting it from Russian intelligence officers. The night this broke, it was not mentioned by people like Hannity who have relentlessly amplified this claim. And now they're sort of acknowledging it, but acknowledging it in a way that, again, stokes further conspiracy theories. Oliver Darcy, thank you. Reaction now from two friends of the source, Democratic strategist Paul Begala and former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin. I think, Paul, a lot of people are probably reading through this filing thinking, are we really doing this again? 
Yeah, uh, Russia is our enemy. Russia wants to hurt America. They, 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 uh, people say metal. They didn't. They invaded cyber invasion in the 2016 election. They're apparently trying to do it again with human sources. Uh, and the people who are repeating this, first, in their defense, the strongest drug I know is confirmation bias. <laughs> right? So you hear something. I don't like Trump. So somebody says something bad about Trump. I'm going to believe it. Um, having said that, People who have a media platform have a responsibility to do more than just nod their head when something confirms their bias. And they have become dupes, what Stalin used to call useful idiots. You hear that phrase a lot these days, and that's what a lot of the right-wing media has become. Alyssa, what do you make of this? Well, listen, this is the Russian playbook. And I think if the average American had a better understanding of how Russians engage in information warfare and disinformation warfare, and they've been doing it for decades in the U.S., but in this era of democratized media, social media, right-wing, and part highly polarized partisan media, it's able to be amplified so much quicker. This is textbook. Anytime you see something that caters to exactly to your point, what you dislike about an opponent, and it almost seems so out there, and there's not much backing it, you should be skeptical. You should be skeptical of information you're provided, and real journalists will kind of suss that out. But I mean, Sean Hannity mentioned this specific issue more than two dozen times on his program in opening monologues without going into the layers of actually pulling back who this person could be. I think there are a lot of members of Congress, by the way, Republican mm -hmm. members, who don't have the sophistication to suss out what might in fact just be Russian disinformation. Yeah, I mean, that's concerning. Uh, Paul, on the other topic, we started the hour with Governor Brian Kemp talking about Trump's legal troubles. We've learned tonight, I should note, that his leadership pack, Trump's, not Kemp's, paid out more than $2.9 million to law firms last month, racked up another $1.9 million in unpaid legal bills at the end of January. This is what Governor Kemp said about Trump's legal issues and when he predicts they could be resolved. I think most voters probably feel the same way I do. I mean, we're a country that was built on laws and the Constitution, and it's, it's you know, up, up to us, really, as elected leaders to be the ones that exemplify that in a lot of ways. Uh, so we'll see where the process plays out. I think probably they will be ruled on for the election. We don't hear that from many right. Republican leaders. Right. No conspiracy theories, no trashing of the prosecutors or the judge who he appointed in this case, Judge McAfee in the Georgia case. Um, it, it, what Brian Kemp has that I don't know many Republicans who do is a fearlessness. He's not scared of Donald Trump. Donald Trump put up a really talented Republican primary opponent against him, David Perdue, a millionaire, former senator. Kemp beat him by a margin of 52. A margin. He took on Trump's best guy and whipped him. And the rest of these Republicans ought to listen to Brian Kemp and watch him. They're all so cowed by Trump, you can hear him moo. And by the way, he did it while, while, while passing conservative policies, right. while actually delivering for his state, and while not making Trump the focus, but when asked, being honest, being principled, and sticking to his core beliefs. He's kind of a model for what a post-Trump Republican should and could Absolutely. look like. Well, it's Griffin, Paul Begala, as always, thank you both. Up next here on CNN, President Biden is promising a major new punishment for Russia following the death of Alexei Navalny. Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S. will join me as critical U.S. aid is stuck in limbo as Russia is making gains on the battlefield. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. 
Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, we heard from former President Trump on Alexei Navalny's death for the first time publicly as he called the Russian opposition leader brave. But when the subject turned to Trump's own legal bills, Trump turned it back to Navalny with this comparison. How would you put up that kind of money because you have a bond to put up? Even if if you appeal, you've got to put up escrow money. That's uh, uh, a lot of dough. It is a form of... Navalny. It is a form of uh, communism or fascism. No, it's not. We heard that comment there. Of course, this is coming as we are also seeing other developments happening on the battlefield. The former president, I should note, has not condemned Russia or Putin for Navalny's death. Instead, tonight he praised Russia's military. Put that in contrast with what you were seeing from the White House, which announced today that new sanctions are going to be coming against Russia, citing Navalny's death and Putin's ongoing war in Ukraine. Of course, this Saturday will mark two years since Russia invaded. And joining me now is the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova. And thank you, Ambassador, for, for being here. I wonder if you agree with the assessment that we heard from your foreign minister earlier today, that that key Ukrainian town of Avdivka would not have been lost if Ukraine had more ammunition in its hands. Hello, Caitlin, and thank you for having me. Well, you know, it's actually 10 10 years today exactly since Russia attacked us the first time. And it's very difficult to comment in the war on what would have happened. But we can clearly say that this war, since the beginning of reinvasion for two years, has always been a function of, of weapons. We always had enough motivated Ukrainians who defend our homes, our loved ones. Uh, we still continue to do that and we will not surrender. And right now we're having the ratio of six to one at most. Uh, and it makes it very difficult. Now, we know we can win this. We know that with a little bit more supply and a little bit more sanctions, frankly, we can get back on a strong offensive. But right now it is what it is. And uh, the destruction of Avdiivka has been very painful. And, uh, you know, even though Russians have lost a lot of people there. So, you know, we really count on the continued support and we need more weapons from all of our friends and allies so that we can stop Russia and, and get back on the on liberating our land. Yeah. The one thing that will be different on this anniversary from year one and year two is that there's not that continued U.S. support that we're seeing in the ter- in terms of military weaponry and aid that is coming, because right now it's at a standstill in the U.S. Congress. And obviously, you're the ambassador. You're in Washington. What are your conversations like with these Russian House members? Are you getting assurances that they do believe another aid package will be passed? Well, we still have very strong bipartisan support. We... Um so it every time we speak, President Zelensky in Munich met with both House and Senate delegation, 70 votes on the Senate floor. Uh, and of course, it's it's an internal uh, issue how to support us, whether to, to vote separately together, you know, we, we, we really shouldn't be getting into it. But, you know, we needed it yesterday. And you're, you're, you're right, you know, we have to be ordering more. We have to be receiving more right now in order to stop Russia, not only for for the sake of Ukraine. For us, it's existential. 
we know that they want to kill all of us. And there are people who are being killed and raped as we speak on the territories that they still occupy and children who have been kidnapped. But we have to stop them because let's listen to Putin. It's well beyond Ukraine for him. He threatens Poland, he threatens Baltic states, he threatens other NATO allies. He threatens anyone who believe in the same values, freedom, democracy, something that we all breathe and think anyone should should, should have a right to if they decide to choose. So, um, you know, th this is a very pivotal moment, really. And I really hope and pray that uh, when Congress comes back, they will be able to find uh, a form or modality in which to continue the support. We'll continue to watch that closely and have those conversations. Ambassador, as always, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Up next, a movement is growing in a key battleground state to vote against President Biden, not necessarily for him. It is coming with the help and the push by a congresswoman from his own party. Tonight, the United States vetoed a United Nations resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The U.S. has its own draft resolution that CNN has seen that calls for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza as soon as practicable. Notice the subtle but significant distinction in that language. For months, the Biden White House has avoided using the term ceasefire, instead preferring the term pause when we've had those brief moments of a pause and fighting. But this comes amid protests from many on the left against President Biden's stance on the war in Gaza. Here tonight is former Virginia governor and former chair of the Democratic National Committee, Terry McAuliffe. Governor, it's great to have you here. And what we're hearing from the U.S. is they're essentially saying that, that if they voted yes on this, that they believe it would hinder and affect the ongoing hostage negotiations. But critics will note, you know, this is the third time that this has happened. Aid agencies say that the decision to, to veto this is unconscionable. How do you think angry voters are going to respond to this? Listen, this is a very tough, challenging situation we have in Israel. Israel has a right to defend themselves. But as the President Biden has said, he has said the response has been over the top. Uh, and that's why the president's worked so hard to get humanitarian aid in. And Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, you have the director of the CIA, Bill Burns, all working their hearts out trying to get these hostages out. Very, very tough situation. But it's important. This is the United States of America. They're a strong ally. But with our close allies, we also have to do it in a humanitarian way. We've got to protect the civilians uh, who are over there in the Middle East today. I mean, but we're not seeing we're not even just seeing the anger from voters. I mean, every time Biden goes somewhere now, he is interrupted, it, it seems like, by a protester uh, who is protesting his stance yeah. on this. People in his own party, Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman uh, from Michigan, she is endorsing and pushing for this movement where basically what she wants to happen, have happened in the Michigan primary is for voters to send a message by voting uncommitted. I wonder what you make of that. Well, listen, this is the Democratic Party. As a former chair of this party, we have a lot of voices. They like to have their voices heard. But listen, Michigan's a critical state for us. Uh, you saw the UAW the other day came out and supported uh, the president. You look at the jobs created, the union jobs that have been created. People understand what Joe Biden has done. And listen, we're coming into, I think March is going to be a very important month. The president is going to give the State of the Union, lay out his what he wants to do in the second term. And in addition, I think Donald Trump will be the nominee uh, of the Republican Party come sometime mid-March. And then the contrast will be clear. I mean, here's Joe Biden, 15 million new jobs, 
Inflation is down two thirds, unemployment under 4%. You know, the longest we've had, Caitlin, in over 50 years. Student loan debt forgiveness for millions of people, prescription drug benefit, infrastructure bill. And contrast that against Donald Trump, uh, a campaign that he wants to do revenge and retribution. He wants a national abortion ban. But I'll tell you what bothers me the most is last week is when he told uh, folks that he believes that Russia basically gave the green light to Putin to go invade uh, our NATO allies. Now, my father fought in World War II, as many of his generation did. I think that's disqualifying to be president of the United States of America. Uh, He has called those that have fought in our wars losers for those that were killed. Uh, This is he's supporting Putin invaded Ukraine. You heard the ambassador a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, He just killed his opposition leader who was in prison. They just arrested a newly minted U.S. citizen, a ballerina from L.A., charged her with high treason. Why? She gave fifty one dollars and eighty cents to a Ukraine relief effort two years ago. So there's a real contrast in this election of what Donald Trump wants to do for America and what Joe Biden has done and where he wants to take this country. But look at look where we are. Joe Biden has won every primary convincingly. He just won South Carolina by 69%. So, Governor, you're not worried about about Michigan. The RNC has 8 million in the bank. Joe Biden's campaign has 130 million. And what's really exciting is 30% of those are new donors. So the campaign's humming. The campaign's doing great. I just believe when it becomes a contrast between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and what Donald Trump stands for and what Joe Biden stands for, it's going to become clear. And as we move forward, about eight and a half months away from the election. But, you know, Donald Trump wants a national abortion ban. Americans don't want that. And they don't want a president who tells our biggest enemy today to go invade our NATO allies. He invaded Ukraine. I've been to the front lines of Ukraine. I've been in the trenches. His artillery fire is going off. These people are fighting their hearts out. And here you got Congress. The Senate passed a bipartisan bill. And yet the House can't pass an Israel aid bill. They can't pass a Ukrainian bill. And they can't pass a bill to fund what we need to do to keep our border secure and safe. It's a disgrace. I mean, they couldn't even pass a bill today to name a post office after George Washington. People are sick of the politics. They want to get things done. And Joe Biden's got that record. You'll see him win big in Michigan. And we'll continue as we go forward. But it's an exciting time. And we're going to win this election. I supported Joe Biden in 2020. I was a big supporter of the president's because why? He puts coalitions together. And that's what we need. Governor Terry McAuliffe, thanks so much for your time. And we'll be back in a moment. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.